Good morning, Wellspring Ohana. Give yourselves a hand. Hug a neighbor. We made it. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, our Bible reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 2, uh, 21 to 38. Uh, you can follow along. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angels had given him before he was conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said to the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of the Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple's courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, did for him, the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what he said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this, this child is destined to cause the falling and the, rise, the rising of many in Israel and to be a, a, a sign that of many hearts will be revealed and as a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also prophets Anna, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Thank you so much, Rico. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we can gather together and worship you uh, and be among your people. We thank you for this past year, for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your love. And Lord, as we uh, enter into the year ahead, we just pray that your spirit would go with us. Bless the rest of our time this morning. Help us to hear you speak to us through your word. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Buchanan. Uh, I'm a member here at Wellspring as well as part of the preaching team. Um, my family is in the back, I think. My wife is with our, our two kids. It's a pleasure to be with you guys this morning on the final Sunday slash final day of the year. 
This morning, uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. We began this series over Advent, and we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of the question, how does a weary world rejoice? So last week, we looked at the birth story on Christmas Eve, and we answered that question by saying that a weary world rejoices by making room for hope. Uh, and making room for what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of others, uh, and in the world. Today, we're picking up just after the birth story in Luke 22, which Rico beautifully read for us. Uh, and we're going to be asking the same question, how does a re weary world, that's kind of hard to say fast, weary world rejoice uh, with, with the idea that we rejoice by rooting ourselves in ritual. So that's where we're going to be going this morning. Uh, before we get to the actual text of this morning, just kind of by way of summarizing where we're at in the story, so far, Luke has given us kind of the entire birth narrative. So Joseph and Mary left uh, Nazareth. They went down to Bethlehem. Jesus was born in a stable. You guys all know the story. The, the angels came, the shepherds came, and then Mary and Joseph circumcise Jesus on the eighth day uh, and give him the name that the angel had given them. When we pick up today, we are immediately confronted, I think, with something that is a little bit unusual or something that uh, we might not be very familiar with. So the, the first part about naming Jesus and having him circumcised, those are things that we, I think, pretty easily understand, right? Like those are things that we do. We name children, we circumcise children. We, we understand what that means. Uh, but then when we look at verse 22, it says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. So the, the storyline is basically that Jesus has been born, and he's been circumcised, and he's been named. And now Mary and Joseph are leaving Bethlehem and going home to Nazareth, which is like a 70-ish mile journey back. Um, I have never had a baby, but seeing my wife after she's had two babies, I don't think that she would have wanted to get on a donkey and sit on that donkey for 70 miles uh, while she rode it through the wilderness. But that's basically what Joseph and Mary uh, are doing now. So on their way back to their home in Nazareth, they stop in Jerusalem, which is really kind of just outside of Bethlehem, to go to the temple. And the reason that they're going to the temple is, I think, maybe a little bit unusual for us. Right? It says that they're going to the temple uh, to observe the purification according to the law of Moses. That's like a little bit weird, right? Like what I don't that, that's not something that we do, right? We don't purify ourselves after having children. So I think that uh, there are two separate but interrelated things going on in this kind of introduction. First, Mary is being purified from her ritual uncleanness. That's why she has to go. We don't have a concept of ritual uncleanness in our culture. That's a very foreign idea, right? When I, um, you know, I teach Bible, uh, 
as a, a job. And when we talk about ritual impurity in the Bible, uh, I ask my students, like, how many of you guys take your shoes off when you go inside a house? Right? And of course, everybody raises their hand. And I tell them, well, where I come from, which is North Carolina, you don't have to take your shoes off when you go inside. I mean, you might if they're dirty, but it's not like compulsory. It's not required. It's not a big deal. And they're all like, oh, that's disgusting. Why would anybody do that? What is wrong with you? And, you know, I just said, well, I mean, your shoes aren't that dirty, right? Like, I mean, I guess they're kind of dirty, but if they're not, if they're not mud on them or whatever, like, who cares? It's not a big deal. And they're really so disgusted by that idea, right? Some of you guys are like, yes, that's disgusting. Terrible. Why would you do that? But it's just, it's just the way things are. And so I think that this, you know, this idea in Hawaii that you have to, you know, take your shoes off when you go inside someone's home, that is maybe the closest that we can get to this idea of ritual purity, right? We think of it in terms of like material dirt too, but it's this idea that like there are, there are just things that you need to do, right? There are things that are unclean. Uh, I heard one scholar, a Japanese scholar, uh, say that the the requirement to take your shoes off before entering a Japanese home is not unrelated to the importance of purity in traditional Japanese religion, right? It's not maybe exactly the same, but it's not unrelated. So in this case with Mary, because Mary is observing the law of Moses, in the law of Moses, there are three things that make someone ritually impure. They are skin disease, right? So what the Bible usually calls leprosy, uh, genital discharge, meaning like uh, having a baby or menstruation or anything like that, and um, death. And again, those are like weird, it's a weird idea that those are ritually unclean things. But because Mary is observing the law of Moses and because she has just had a child, she is ritually unclean, which means that before she can participate in the normal sort of daily life of worship uh, in the temple, she needs to cleanse herself. So that's what she's doing. She's going to the temple to offer a sacrifice for her cleansing. The other thing that's happening is that they're taking Jesus to the temple to consecrate him to the Lord, which is a command that comes from the book of Exodus. So those, that's kind of the nitty gritty of what's going on in those first few verses. Uh, but I think that beyond that, there are two much broader points that Luke wants to make with this introduction. The first is simply that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are obedient, Torah-observant, law-observant Jews. And that might sound like a really, uh, I don't know, trite observation, but I think it's really important uh, for Luke's readers, but also for us, because there's this really long history of Christian readings of the Gospels in which Jesus is pitted against the Jewish law right? Or Jesus is pitted against maybe even Judaism as a whole. So one example is uh, a quotation from a really influential German theologian named Adolf von Harnack, who was a very influential in the early 20th century. And just like anytime there's a German named Adolf in the beginning of the 20th century who has something to say about the Jews, that should kind of set off like a little bit of an alarm bell. But either way, Adolf von Harnack says uh, in a very influential book about Christianity, he says, the Jews thought of God as a tyrant, guarding the ceremonial and ritual observances in his household. But Jesus breathed freely in the presence of God. The Jews saw God only in his law. 
Jesus saw and felt him everywhere. So there's this idea, which is extremely clear in this quotation, but I think also subtly present in a lot of our readings of scripture, that Judaism is all about the law, and Jesus is all about love. And so Jesus isn't really that Jewish. Uh, aside from the fact that this is a really gross characterization, caricature of Judaism, uh, and I think a caricature of Jesus, uh, there are a lot of other issues with it, right? Uh, it's It leads to a kind of a, a Christian supersessionism of Judaism, perhaps even a form of Christian anti-Judaism. And I think it's just not, not true. And I think that uh, what Luke is doing by talking about the importance of observing the law to Mary and Joseph and Jesus at the beginning of this story is he's making it really clear that they are law-observant Jews, right? I think that's really important for him. Second, and I, and I think most crucially, Luke starts out with uh, this story because he wants us to make, he wants to make a clear to us that obedience and ritual are the context of God's surprising new redemptive action. One commentator puts it this way. He says, ritual and obedience to the law is the context of prophecy and fulfill fulfillment. In these parameters, the living God creates the possibility of innovation. I really like that. I'll read it one more time. He says, ritual and obedience to the law is the context of prophecy and fulfillment. In these parameters, the living God creates the possibility of innovation. And Luke makes this point, not just by starting out with Jesus, uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph observing the law, but also even more subtly by the way that he returns to that theme at the end. At the end of this story, he says, after they were done observing the law of Moses, they returned home. And perhaps even more subtly than that, by the way, he starts out in the first three verses by mentioning the law three times. And then in the next three, he switches and mentions the spirit three times. And so Luke is in this very uh, clever and I think subtle way tying together the ritual observance of the law and this surprising work of the Spirit. And for us, I think that those things are not often tied together. But we see as we continue that obedience to the rituals of the law is the frame, the context within which the Spirit of God speaks something new and surprising. So it's within this framework of Mary and Joseph's obedience to the law that we get these really incredible moments with Simeon and Anna. And we could spend a lot of time going into Simeon and Anna's uh, speeches, especially Simeon's. The, uh, the early church father Origen, maybe the first theologian, Christian theologian, uh, devoted seven sermons to this text. So there's like a lot of time we could spend on it. I'm not going to spend seven sermons worth of time. Uh, but the one thing that I want to point out about Simeon and Anna even though we don't really know very much about them, other than that they seem to both be quite old, is that they are both uh, righteous people. So Luke tells us about Simeon. He says, he was righteous and devout and filled with the Holy Spirit. And of Anna, Luke says that she was a prophetess who never left the temple courts, but worshiped God there night and day in fasting and in prayer. 
So both of these individuals, Simeon and Anna, were deeply faithful to God and filled with the Spirit. And here again, I think just like Mary and Joseph, we get this idea that there is not a, a severing of, of ritual and obedience and law and the Spirit, but a conjoining. Right? It is because Simeon and Anna were righteous and devoted to God that they were able to hear the Spirit's voice when Jesus came into the temple. Right? It's because of their deep uh connection to God. It's because of their empowerment by the Spirit that when Jesus was brought into the temple, they recognized him for who he was, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah. Those things for Luke are deeply intertwined, deeply connected. And I think that this is, in some ways, a challenge for us in the numerous ways that Luke links rituals, and obedience to the law with the action of the Holy Spirit. Because as I said, we often contrast those things, right? The Spirit is uh, spontaneous and surprising and full of emotion, and it comes out of nowhere. And ritual is boring and dry and dead and something that we have to do. And we want things that make us feel these deep emotions, and that's what the Spirit is. And, and ritual is something else. Right? One example that I can think of in my own life of this kind of idea is, you know, like the way I grew up, we didn't really grow up reading prayers, right? Hardly ever. Uh, maybe like the Lord's Prayer. But other than that, prayer was something that was supposed to be spontaneous, right? Like real praying was something that happened kind of from deep within you and, and it, was, it was spontaneous. And there was this idea, I, I can recall hearing it articulated on a couple of occasions that reading pre-written prayers wasn't really as good because it wasn't as genuine, because uh, you might just kind of fall into the trap of reciting the words without really putting any meaning behind them that kind of thing. And I think the, the broader idea is that real spirit-filled spirituality is spontaneous and kind of emotional, whereas uh, this kind of ritualistic reading prayers and doing the same thing over and over again, that's not, that's not real spirituality or the spirit's not really in that. But I, I don't think that that's what we see here in this text. I think in this text, we see uh, kind of the exact opposite. The context for hearing the surprising words of the Spirit is the not-so-surprising consistent acts of spiritual obedience, right, of spiritual discipline. Just as ritual practices and faithfulness open Simeon and Anna to recognize the work of God, so too our own spiritual disciplines open our eyes to see and hear and experience the Spirit's work in our own lives. Practices like prayer, fasting, worship, service, tune our hearts to God's voice and action. So in our modern context, what I'm suggesting is that we can view spiritual disciplines as the rituals that position us to encounter the Spirit. Through intentional participation in spiritual practices, we become more, and att more attentive and receptive to the Spirit's leading, just as Simeon and Anna were more attentive and receptive 
to the Messiah when he came into their midst because of their lifelong faithfulness to God. Uh, in her excellent book, uh, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Adele Calhoun uh, lists about 75 different spiritual disciplines. It's a lot of spiritual disciplines. I think if you would ask me what spiritual disciplines are, I could have named like four, five, right? Uh, we don't obviously have time to talk about all 75 of these spiritual disciplines. So I want to just talk about two things. First is to touch on the question why and how spiritual disciplines transform us. I think that this is really important because I think consciously or not, uh, there's a very real temptation to slip into the belief that it's the practices themselves that are transformative. And I think that this is like a really uh, easy thing to, to start thinking, again, whether consciously or not, because we are encouraged to participate in them, right? I'm encouraged to read my Bible. Uh, I'm encouraged to worship. I'm encouraged to, to gather with other believers. I'm encouraged to do acts of service for others. So all of those things must be transformative. They must be the thing that, that makes me more like Christ. I mean, that makes sense. Certainly throughout my life, I've thought that, whether subconsciously or not. But I think that uh, that's wrong. And I think that's wrong because it's not the thing itself that transforms us. It's the spirit that transforms us. And the spiritual practice is the tool that the spirit uses. So uh, Richard Foster a really great writer on, on spiritual disciplines, says this uh, in, his, in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. This is, I think, really crucial because if we view, let's say, um, Bible reading as the thing itself that transforms us, then we've taken charge of our own transformation and when we read the Bible, we're trying to transform ourselves through it. And at least in my own life, I've experienced this uh, ending in frustration, right? I'm reading the Bible every day. I don't feel like it's doing anything for me, but I'm doing this practice that's supposed to be transformative. So there must be something wrong with me. Like I'm not doing it right because it's not, it's not transforming me. But instead, I think that when we view these practices, say reading the Bible, as a tool that we offer to the Spirit of God, the responsibility for our transformation is not on us. It's on the Spirit. And these things that we do as acts of obedience is a way that we offer God the, the, the opportunity. We offer God a way to work in us. I think that that is, that's really important, right? It totally changes the way that we view spiritual disciplines, the way that we view how they transform us. We might say, the discipline it tills the soil of our hearts and the spirit brings the growth. So together, our obedience in the discipline and the spirit's work is what transforms us. I think that's great. Like I said, we don't have time to go over all 75 possible disciplines. I encourage you, if you're interested in the spiritual disciplines, to maybe in the new year buy Adele Calhoun's book or ask me. I have a copy, borrow. Uh, 
But I did want to talk about just one spiritual discipline uh, and, and do it together. It's called the prayer of examine. And some of you may already be familiar with this spiritual discipline. It was developed in the 15th century by St. Ignatius of Loyola, the, the founder of the Society of Jesus. And the idea of the prayer of examine is basically that it encourages us to reflect on the way that God is working in our lives by thinking closely about um, our day, our week, our year, whatever the case may be. So usually the prayer of examine is something that's done uh, at the end of the day, right? And kind of reflecting back on the day and looking for ways that God was at work in the day. But you can really do it whenever. I think today is maybe a particularly appropriate time since it's the end of the year and the end of the week. Uh, so we're going to go through the prayer of examine together. You have the questions in your bulletin, I think. I was told. Uh, they're also going to be up here on the screen. So I'm going to read them, and then we're just going to spend some time in silence together going through this. So first, settle your hearts and minds uh, and reflect on these questions silently, asking God to speak to you through his spirit. Place yourself in God's presence. Give thanks for God's great love for you. Pray for the grace to understand how God is acting in your life and to see the Spirit's work. Now take a moment to review your day, your week, this past year, and recall specific moments that stand out to you and how you felt during them. Reflect on the moments when you felt closest to God. Reflect on the moments when you felt furthest from God. What was happening? Ask God to speak into that.
Now take a moment to look toward this next year. Invite God to show you ways that you can open yourself up to his spirit. What spiritual practices might you introduce into your life? What ways can you tune your heart to God? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the example of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna. We thank you that we are not responsible for our own transformation, but that we offer to you our obedience and that you are the one who transforms us. So Lord, we pray that as we go into this next year, you would help us to see the ways that we need to align our lives with your will. Places where we need to offer you our whole selves. Places where we can make our hearts and our minds more available to your spirit, where we can listen to you, where we can recognize what you are doing in us. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness. We thank you that you are making each of us more like your son. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.